0: the haunted uk podcast is produced and released in stereo listening through an environment such as headphones or stereo speakers will ensure you get the best experience
1: welcome to the bellwitch podcast here we talk about the famous bellwitch haunting which is a legend from southern United States folklore, centered on a 19th century Bell family of northwest Robinson country Tennessee. The farmer John Bell, a resident of his family along the Red River in an area currently near the town of Adams. Hang on a second. No, 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 no. That's the wrong Bell Witch. This is a podcast about being a witch and a wicked and a pagan in the 21st century. It's kind of like a moot every month. We get a guest speaker in and they speak about something that they are really passionate about and know lots. We learn everything and anything from poisonous plants to reiki to crystal magic to sigils, trigger magic, to pagan parroting and camping in a bell tent. It's got nothing to do with the bell witch from the 18th century in Tennessee, the the haunting that scared people to death in a little townhouse, which may or may not be true. Pretty cool story, but yeah, it's the wrong bellwitch. Anyway, this is brought to you by Swales the Friendly Green Witch in Leeds, UK. A witch with a Northern accent, a love for all things weird, spooky and interesting, and A smelly bearded dragon called Dave. So tune in every fortnight, listen to the Bell Witch podcast by Swales, the Friendly Green Witch, wherever you get your podcasts from.
0: Here at Haunted UK Podcast Towers, we're committed to giving you high quality, great episodes time after time after time. But this takes a lot of effort in research, writing, editing, recording, mixing, mastering and publishing. We don't have a fancy production company or a bank of scriptwriters or a large budget to keep everything going. We are a fully independent podcast. If you'd like to help the show, then why not get over to Coffee and search for the Haunted UK podcast, where you can subscribe to give just £3 per month the price of a coffee or as much as you like. If you'd rather not sign up for a monthly subscription, then you can simply make a one-off donation. Again, as little or as much as you like. This really helps the show with our website, coffee membership, merchandise, equipment, as well as other financial commitments. So if you feel that you'd like to help keep the lights burning, the wheels turning and the stories rolling, then why not consider getting over to Coffee and donating to the show? That's K-O F-I and search for the Haunted UK podcast. Thank you. And here are the names of the amazing people who have donated to the show recently. They are Andy Elliott, Wenny Somani, Martin Gibbon, Rebecca Fellingham, Jordan and Talia, Anne Langton, and last but not least, Haley Hammond. We also have some exciting new merchandise available on our website, including mugs, mouse mats, drinks bottles, bags, t-shirts, hoodies, and even bottle openers. Get yourself over to www.hauntedukpodcast.com to check out our Etsy shop. Now, without any further delay... Let's get this episode started. As I crossed the threshold of the doorway, I felt something grip the back of my stab vest, just underneath my neck, and pull me backwards. The force of the pull was strong enough for me to lose my balance and stumble backwards into the room, however not enough to make me lose my footing entirely. I turned to face the interior of the room once more, but still found myself alone. At this point, my skin began to crawl, and a fear unlike anything I'd ever experienced before, and have not felt again to this day, started to quickly wash over me. Episode 44 of the Haunted UK podcast. And it's time to hear stories from the amazing people who work in the emergency services and the military. I've been tremendously lucky enough to have had the trust of so many people who have sent in their stories to the show. Every single one of them has been amazing, engrossing, sometimes heartbreaking, and often terrifying. It's always so easy for skeptics to entirely dismiss a credible person's account of an event, which science doesn't seem to accommodate. It's also very common for a witness's account to be picked apart because of their job, their physical or mental health, the environment which they were in at the time of the experience, and so many other variables. But how do you pick apart the statement of a witness who is used to being under pressure, used to seeing suffering and death, whose senses are tuned to be on constant alert? Those in the emergency services are a truly special collection of people. They have chosen career paths which will undoubtedly at some point put them in the direct firing line of experiences which would disturb the rest of us. But they endure. I was lucky enough to have had a few stories from those in the emergency services which I included in a number of Listener Stories episodes. But I wanted desperately to see if I could persuade more emergency services workers to be brave enough to come forward with their paranormal experiences. I even recorded a special request asking for those people to share their tales of the strange, the unexplained, the terrifying. And they didn't disappoint. So You are about to hear astounding and frightening stories from those in the military, the police force, the fire service, the prison service, the NHS, including doctors, nurses, physical and mental health workers and carers. All of these people face potential life and death situations every single day. Situations where they have to be mentally prepared to take on the huge pressures of what would normally break other people. These are their stories. Hi, I'll call myself D from the West Midlands. After listening to the listener stories episodes at the end of season 2, I heard you found stories from those in professions such as mine particularly interesting. If this story is used in a future episode, may I please remain anonymous. ...as it may have negative implications both in my career and for the family involved. One of the reasons I don't tell people this story, who I don't know personally... ...is because many people would not believe it to be true. I joined the police as an officer in 2013... ...and have had numerous encounters with death in my decade of service. I've attended countless fatal road traffic collisions suicides and murders in this time. However, no incident has left me so shaken and disturbed as a seemingly routine call-out one afternoon in the spring of 2015. At this stage of my life, being 24 years old and never having any sort of paranormal experience, I would consider myself to have been skeptical. I've always thought of ghost stories as a form of entertainment a basis for films and TV shows and that most encounters with the paranormal had logical explanations far less interesting than the stories they inspired. However, this was all about to change. It was an afternoon, around 3.30pm on a warm spring midweek day in Wolverhampton. I was on duty, awaiting the first call to service of the day. I remember there being very little going on in terms of radio traffic at incoming incidents. I was young in my service, still in my probation, and having just started working on a new shift, I was keen to make a good impression to my more experienced colleagues. Then, our call sign was shouted up over the air to attend an immediate incident. A young girl, around 14 years old, had arrived home from school. For context, the house was a large detached Victorian villa in an affluent area of the city. The property had multiple period features, including stained glass windows, a large heavy wooden front door, and a dark oak staircase immediately in front of you as you entered the house. The girl was not expecting anyone to be at home, so was somewhat alarmed when she entered the hallway of her home and heard her older sister's Casio keyboard being played upstairs in a bedroom at the front of the house. Naturally, she called out to her sister, Lauren? but was petrified Lauren? when in response to her voice, she heard distinct footsteps running across the landing and into a bedroom at the rear of the house. The girl ran out of the house and called her father, telling him that she just got home and that there was someone upstairs in the house. Her father called 999 whilst on his way back home. I arrived at the location only a few minutes after the call had been made. Excited and eager, I was keen to make a good impression, and what could be better than catching a burglar in the act? I entered the house through the front door and drew my baton in preparation to detain and arrest anyone inside. Slowly and quietly, I made my way up the staircase, which as I neared the top of, allowed me to see into the rear bedroom where the girl said the intruder had run into. I noticed that the temperature in the upstairs portion of the house was notably colder than the downstairs and outside, but at the time, I simply put this down to it being an old house. On entering this room, I expected to be confronted with another person However, there was nobody there. The entirety of the house was searched, including the attic, cupboards, and even the cellar, whilst other officers contained the address to prevent anyone escaping. But there was simply nobody there. I decided to check the rear bedroom of the house one last time, just to be double sure that I hadn't missed someone hiding. Again, nothing I turned to leave the room, putting my baton away and letting out a quiet sigh of disappointment as I began to walk out of the room. This is when my skeptical stance on the paranormal would be turned on its head. As I crossed the threshold of the doorway, I felt something grip the back of my stab vest just underneath my neck and pull me backwards. The force of the pull was strong enough for me to lose my balance and stumble backwards into the room, however, not enough to make me lose my footing entirely. I turned to face the interior of the room once more, but still found myself alone. At this point, my skin began to crawl, and a fear unlike anything I'd ever experienced before, and have not felt again to this day, started to quickly wash over me. In literal terms, I ran out of that house, jumping down the last six or so steps and out of the front door. It was here that I saw the girl's father had arrived and was embracing his terrified daughter on the driveway. The father's eyes met mine and he must have seen a face full of fear and confusion. He said to me, "'You experienced something in there, didn't you?' The father then explained He believed there to be an active poltergeist in the house my experience was just the latest in a string of unexplained events the television would turn on in the dead of night and gradually be turned up to full volume despite the whole family being asleep in bed items would be moved and hidden footsteps heard food being taken out of the fridge and thrown onto the floor and a reoccurring smell of pipe tobacco being smoked in the living room, despite nobody in the house being a smoker. I always said that I would have to experience something firsthand to believe in the paranormal. Well, it turns out being touched by a poltergeist is more than enough to turn a skeptic into an adamant believer. Thank you for taking the time to read my story. I hope you've enjoyed reading it. Our next collection of stories come from Joe, who after working in a variety of positions in the NHS, shares a number of very strange and creepy experiences. I have a few stories from working in a care home, working for patient transport, and now from working in 999 ambulance control. The first one that comes to mind from the care home is a story shared by all of us that worked there at the time. We had a resident who I'll call Susan, not her real name. Susan was bedbound and very elderly with stage 4 cancer, which had become so severe it had grown through her skin. Susan couldn't really talk anymore, but she smiled at you, and it was probably the nicest smile any of us had ever seen. You just knew you were in the company of one of life's nice people. Well, regularly, and I mean every few days, you'd walk past her room and see someone stay next to her bed, either in the chair or standing over her. When you'd pop your head in to properly speak to who we'd all assume to be her daughter, there'd be nobody there. The number of times you'd see someone so clearly... You would even tell one of the other girls that Susan's family are in and ask them to take them a pot of tea, only to get there and to find no family. It happened all the time. When Susan passed away, one of the nurses came to the staff room to ask why no one had told her she'd passed. We didn't realize she had, so we said so. But this nurse insisted that she'd just seen what looked like people from a funeral directors as well as a priest from the church. We ran down to find Susan was still alive but unconscious. She passed later that day with her family around her. The nurse was so convinced that she'd seen the guys in their suits and a priest at her side. Working for patient transport, I turned up one day to an old boy's house and was greeted on my way out by a lady with a red coat on. She smiled and rushed past me with a wave. As we went further into the house, the old boy screamed, asking how I'd got in, and I told him the lady that I assumed was his wife had let me in. He told me that this was impossible, as his wife had died a year before. I apologized, but insisted that the lady who had just left the house and passed me by had let me in. He said that no one had been to visit him for weeks. I pointed at the picture on the wall and said that was the lady, and he shouted at me because he felt I was being cruel, because it was his late wife. He refused to come with me and even called my boss for breaking in and playing pranks. Working in the ambulance control room, my colleagues and I can all tell when we receive a call from the care lines that look after those emergency buzzers the elderly or vulnerable people wear because the calls have been weird. Many of us share the same or very similar story. I received a call from the care line and they stated someone's seizure alert mat was going off. These mats detect strange movements and have to have someone laying on them, making those movements. In this particular case, the ambulance crew arrived to find the person had been dead for likely months. So how were the movements being detected? On another occasion, a group of kids called saying that an old man in a house had shouted out of the bedroom window, asking them to call an ambulance. He told them that his chest hurt and then they saw him fall out of sight. Again, the ambulance crew arrived to find that the male owner of the house was dead and had been for some time in the garden shed with awful chest injuries. In another incident, I took a call from the operator who said that there had been a request of an ambulance, but the caller on the landline had gone completely quiet. The operator asked if she could put the call through to me so that I could possibly trace it to an address. I took the call and started asking questions. Following the procedure we have for silent calls, I then heard the loudest thump and a scream then the line went silent Hello. Hello? I stayed on the line until the crew arrived they broke their way into the property and reported that the phone was in the middle of a room completely stripped bare the crew ended up calling the police because there was what looked like scratches going from the door to the phone as far as I know Nothing more came of the situation, as the house had been empty for a long time. All the best, Joe. Keith has been quite a regular contributor to the show's Listener Stories episodes, entertaining and scaring us with his tales from places such as Dudley Castle. But the following story came about during a chance meeting at a gym When Keith got talking to a member of the fire service. Hi Steve. Hope you and your family are well. I've just listened to season 3's Listener Stories episode, part 1. Excellent job. You do all the stories proud with how you retell the tales. And I can't wait for the next installment. Some very interesting tales in this episode, and I find it really interesting. ...when you get paranormal accounts from professional people, such as the special constable. Just going off track slightly, a gym I used to use years ago had a sauna in a steam room, etc. And you would get to know some of the people there as you saw them on a regular basis. I'd finished my workout and went to the sauna, and upon entering found that there was only one other person in there. I'd spoken to this person a few times before... And on this occasion, our conversation turned to paranormal experiences. This fellow was a fireman at the time, and he said a few years back when in the army he was stationed in Germany. At dusk, he and a colleague were travelling back to their barracks, and the journey took them past an old World War II German barracks in a heavily forested area, in the middle of nowhere. He said there were no windows or doors on the building, but just openings where they once were. Just a shell, if you like. He said as he was looking at the building, he was a passenger in the vehicle they were traveling in, he looked at one of the doorways, and he said you could clearly see the silhouette of a World War II German officer standing in the doorway, as if looking at them. Immediately, he turned to tell his colleague, then turned back. But the figure was gone. He said you could clearly make out the peaked hat and long trench coat on this shadowy figure. Very eerie. Anyway, a big thank you for reading out our events at Dudley Castle, etc. With your excellent take on them, I'll endeavour to write more experiences for you. Take care. Keith. We now move on to a series of stories from an individual who works in the prison service. This person, who asked to remain anonymous, tells us of some incredible incidents which they have experienced both inside their place of work and outside. Firstly, I would like to say that I consider myself a skeptic with an open mind to the possibility of things that cannot be explained. In other words, I attempt to put a reasonable account to what I witness. Due to the nature of my occupation, I will not be giving my name or where I now work or have worked. I've worked in the prison service for almost 14 years now, starting my life as an operational support grade, an OSG, at a prison in the Midlands. However, this is not where I am currently based as I progressed to a prison officer and now work in a prison outside of the Midlands. To give you some context about what an Operation Support Grade does within the prison walls, they are essentially the backbone of the prison service. They book in and search visitors to the establishment, escort vehicles into the prison, observe CCTV and also conduct night shifts on the wings. They tend to have more interaction with visitors, and if they do work with prisoners, then it tends to be those who have a lower security clearance. The prison I worked in within the Midlands was opened in the early 90s, and even though it was quite a new prison, it has probably seen many prisoners leave the prison either at the end of their sentence, or those that unfortunately never got to see their release date. There is one wing that staff feel uneasy about going on during the night shift. Although no one had ever told me that they had seen anything, it was always described as just a feeling. Night shifts within prison walls meant that, with the exception of the person in charge, you may go a whole 11 hours without seeing another person, unless a prisoner requires your assistance. You would be based in a small office with a TV, facing outwards onto the three-tiered walkways, hearing every flush of a toilet, every cough, and the occasional hiss of the heating going off or coming on. On this occasion, it was my night to be on that wing. As you sit there facing over all the cells, behind you would be the wing boards and above them would be the following day's unlock lists attached to three separate clipboards the time was roughly about 1.15 in the morning, and this is an estimate, as this occurred probably about 12 years ago, and although I can't remember the exact time, I remember exactly what happened next. Working on the computer, I was facing away from the roll boards. It was quiet. Very quiet. With the noise of my typing being the only noise that was breaking the silence of 200 prisoners being asleep until i heard something fall on the hard polished floor that was behind me i turned around to see that all three clipboards were on the floor and yes i know what you're thinking a sudden gust of wind perhaps my counter argument is that all doors must be secured to the outside and the office is in the center of the building so it must have been a powerful gust of wind to get through the wing and to get through to the enclosed office. I could also accept the gust theory if only one clipboard hit the floor, but all three hit the floor at exactly the same time so that all noise amalgamated as one. Another case that has no rational explanation within the prison walls occurred during prison visits. I was in the CCTV room which is a very small room no bigger than 10 feet by 6 feet. All that's in this room are the three TV screens which you can cycle through to observe the visits, three chairs and a DAB radio. On this occasion, I was the only person in that room, and it was a quiet day in the visitor's hall. I had the DAB radio on for ambience, and on the center control for the CCTV was my UHF radio walkie-talkie, which I used to communicate with the visits hall staff. Next to me on another chair was a magazine. Visits were in full flow, so the time must have been around the 3 p.m. mark on a Saturday afternoon. Suddenly, I experienced static through the DAB radio, which then progressed along the room and started coming through the UHF radio as if it was moving through the room. I can only explain it as moving, so you can get a sense of movement of sound within the room, nothing visual at all. As the static passed through the UHF radio, and, if it was visible, would have passed the chairs, the magazine on the chair flipped off the chair. There was not much height to the flip. It was as if someone pushed it off the chair and it hit the floor, this whole event was really intriguing to me as I sat there and tried to justify in my head what I'd just witnessed. My drive to the prison gave me two different journeys to work. One was longer but quicker via the M5. The alternate journey was through Hanbury Woods, or as it's also known, Dodder Hill Common near Droidwich. The surrounding woodland was a site that many people attended to end their suffering which led to a local pub calling its new bar the hangman's bar this journey was shorter than the m5 way but due to the country lanes it tended to be a bit slower the journey through the woods was always my choice of journey until april 2013. i was working a late shift which meant that I would have to be at the prison for 1.30pm to start my shift. So the time was approximately 1pm. It was a particularly pleasant spring day, with the sun being quite close to the horizon, which meant my visor was partly down. The window was open, and the CD player was booming with the sounds of Linkin Park. I have driven this journey thousands of times, and so I was on autopilot, singing along on my own. i just entered the woods section of my journey when I was alerted by the observation of my breath. This was suddenly joined by a temperature drop within the car that for one made me wind my window up. But the sight of my breath continued and the two made me feel really uncomfortable. The next feeling is one that I have never experienced since. The sense that I was no longer in this car alone i looked in the mirror to see that no one was in the car with me but the feeling didn't end instead it got more intense i now look back at what i did after and wonder what the hell i was thinking the next thing i did probably came from my fascination with the supernatural i turned off my stereo by the big button in the middle of the stereo that is also the volume control And I said, I know that you are here. And if you are here, then give me a sign. Not a single second had passed from me ending that question when my stereo turned straight back on by itself. This sent shivers down my spine to the point that I pulled the car over and got out for a few seconds before gathering my composure to get back into the car. Upon arriving at the jail, I was a few minutes late for my shift. I explained to my line manager what I had just experienced, and I was met with disbelief. As if anyone would make up this story as an excuse for being late. I told my colleagues about my car journey, and on this occasion, I was met with ridicule. It's no surprise that people don't come forward and share their experiences. The next day I drove my usual route through the woods as I did the day before, hopeful to see if anything would happen again. This time, no coldness, no visibility of breath, no radios turning themselves on or off, but instead I was met with a severe headache. Maybe I had built myself up to the point of giving myself a headache. However, this occurred the next day, the day after that and the day after that as well until I decided I was going to change my route to work. Maybe there is something about being open-minded to these experiences and maybe it has something to do with it being hereditary as my mother and auntie have all had experiences. My mother was even told by a medium that she has the gift but it needs developing. My mother chose not to. My auntie once told me that her husband, who had recently died, once visited her and was standing outside of the Venetian doors leading to the garden. He was beckoning her to open the door so he could enter the house. She sat still, not believing what she was seeing until he disappeared. Shortly after this, my mother and auntie went to see a medium or fortune teller at Skegness, who recorded their sessions and they each got a copy of it on CD. On the way back home, my auntie played her CD and said to me that I may be interested in what it says. This unidentifiable female voice said that, I have your husband here with me now, and he wants to ask you one question. What is the question that my uncle wanted to ask my auntie? I will leave you with the sentence that followed. Quote, Why didn't you let him in? End quote. As you all know, with every story that is sent into the show, I always reply. And I asked if there was any history with the land that the prisons were built on, and this was the reply: the prison that I worked at was opened in 1993. However, this Category B prison was built upon 243 acres of farmland. This land also had a Category C jail built on it at the time. However, the building that was the Category D open prison is the building that the land belongs to, and it's the building with the history. It is this building that was the main manor house for the land and farm around it. This manor house and the land it stood on were also the location of an abbey which both came into the possession of the Windsor family in 1542 at the dissolution of the monasteries. One of the most important late 19th century country houses in England, the mansion was built between 1884 and 1891 by two men for the first Earl of Plymouth. At his coming of age in 1878, He inherited some 30,500 acres and an income from ground rents and port royalties which allowed him to undertake the building of the manor at a time when many landed aristocrats were facing retrenchment due to the agricultural depression. Constructed in the Jacobean style, it was perhaps the last Victorian prodigy house. After the Second World War, the Third Earl sold the estate to the Crown, and it was redeveloped as a prison. The mansion was used to house young offenders, and later low-risk prisoners, while adult prisons were built in the grounds. When this building was a women's prison, prisoners were offered counselling after reports that a ghostly monk had been seen walking through walls. I can also tell you another unsettling story about this prison but it didn't happen to me so the validity of the events of that night can or could be questioned a prisoner who was located in the healthcare wing which holds about six cells was stating that he needed to get out of his cell because something was coming for him he was in an agitated state and it wasn't unusual for prisoners on this healthcare wing to experience hallucinations or display schizophrenic signs. Anyway, this prisoner went on to severely self-harm, to the point of having to go to an outside hospital where he remained for that night. Why talk about this incident and what has it got to do with the paranormal, you may ask? Whilst he was out at hospital and at about 1am in the morning, The OSG and nurses down there were alerted to an emergency cell alarm. When the cell in which the button was pressed was located, they were shocked to find out that it was his cell, and there was no one in there. Electrical fault, maybe. A restless spirit, possibly. You can't rule out, either. Our next story comes from a serving police officer who had an extremely disturbing and frightening experience while attending a call with his partner? Their anonymity and omission of any place names have been respected. Hi there. Loving the podcast, so at your request, here's a story for you. Now, there's no real ending to this, it's more of a strange occurrence rather than a sighting, etc. I am a serving police officer and I'm coming up to 20 years' service with the last 12 years being a Rhodes Police Officer. As you can imagine, this role has given me my fair share of unpleasant sights and scenes, but this story, thankfully, doesn't involve any of that. This event or occurrence goes right back to 2005 when I was a beat officer still in my probationary period. It was early evening when I received a radio message to attend a disturbance at an address within a town centre. So a colleague and I made our way to the location immediately. The address was a first floor flat above a shop in one of the side streets of the town. It was a single front door in between two shops. I rang the buzzer and within a few moments the caller opened the door. I could see from the front door that there was a single set of stairs that led to a landing where his flat was. Then the stairs continued to another second floor flat. And then the stairs continued again to a door which led to the roof of the building. The caller was in his mid-twenties, unshaven, wearing jeans and a dressing gown. His complexion was pale and the look on his face was one of concern and worry. He invited us in to discuss the reason for the call so we entered and climbed the single narrow stairs to the landing outside his front door. The door was already open, and his girlfriend was stood in the doorway, dressed in a very similar way, and had the same worried look of concern on her face, but was relieved to see us. There were no signs of any disturbance from when we first arrived, and we didn't hear anything prior to ringing the buzzer. So I asked the caller what had happened, And why he needed to call us. He explained that they were sat in their flat when suddenly the door at the very top of the stairs began to bang and rattle violently. In other words, quote, it sounded like someone was kicking the shit out of the door trying to get in, end quote. My colleague took further details as I walked up the straight narrow stairs to the door. The door was solid, locked and no signs of any recent damage, and there appeared to be no way of getting access from the roof. I came up with three options. One, the caller's report was correct, and that there was actually someone on the roof trying to get in from the outside. Or two, the occupants of the other flat were responsible in some way. Or three, somehow, somebody had gained access via the main front door, and was in the stairwell area, but had left prior to us arriving. I walked back down and explained what I thought could be the cause. It was then explained to me that there was no access onto the roof other than that door, and that the flat above was unoccupied and had been for some time. They were the only people living above the shop, and they didn't hear anyone running or walking around on the stairs and they certainly didn't let anyone in other than us. I walked back upstairs to take a look at the flat above to ensure that it hadn't been broken into, and I could see that it was secure and even padlocked, presumably by the landlord to prevent any break in. There was nothing else I could see that could explain what he had reported. I walked back down the stairs, and at this point, my colleague had gone inside the flat with the tenants. So, as I reached the door, I just walked in to join my colleague and to explain that the flat above was secure, to try and give them some sort of peace of mind. As I entered, though, the whole mood changed. My colleague was stood in front of the two tenants, facing towards the back of the flat. She was acting oddly. She didn't turn her head to look at me, but instead turned her eyes towards me as if she was frozen. I went and stood next to her, and I too turned towards the tenants. As I began to ask the tenants if there had been any other incidents of this type, I suddenly had this overwhelming feeling of dread, and I could feel it through my entire body. I also noticed that my colleague had now moved closer to me, and I could feel her hands slowly trying to find mine, and when she found it, she held it tightly. I didn't react to this because it was clear that she was concerned about something that was taking place and that they were experiencing the same feeling. I then noticed that the kitchen area behind the tenants was getting darker. The light in the flat wasn't great to begin with, but this was noticeable. It was as if it was being slowly filled with blackness. My colleague had also noticed this and she gripped my hand even tighter. I could see the look on the faces of the tenants. They looked tired, concerned, and they were clearly aware that we were feeling and experiencing something that had been happening to them. I don't know what we were experiencing, but what with the intruder event originally reported to us, the violent hammering of the door, that feeling of dread, and the darkness enveloping the flat and then my colleague grabbing my hand the way she did. It was clearly something beyond our explanation and beyond our control. I explained to the tenant that everything appeared to be in order and that nobody had broken in. So in that respect, they were safe. But they should call us immediately if anything else happened and keep this door locked. He thanked us for coming out, And as I was about to leave, they both looked at me in a way that declared an unspoken acknowledgement that we all knew that something else was going on, and it wasn't the act of another person. My colleague and I got back to the patrol car where there was a moment of silence until we'd driven far enough away from the area and we grabbed a takeaway coffee. We then discussed what had happened. She told me that as I had gone up to check on the other flat, the tenants invited her in. As she walked into the flat, she suddenly felt dread and a heavy atmosphere. She is a believer in the paranormal, and she said there was a definite presence in that flat. And whatever it was, it was evil. Truly evil. She explained that she could see the kitchen getting darker. As if something was warning us to get out, which is why she grabbed my hand. And it was at that point she just wanted to leave. It was clear that we'd experienced and felt the same thing, and that the tenants knew that it wasn't just something banging the door trying to get in. There was something much more going on, which unfortunately we were powerless to deal with. In the years that followed, My colleague and I have taken different paths within the service, but whenever we bump into each other, we always speak about that incident and laugh. I guess it may be a comfort thing, but it's a day that will always give us both chills. Knowing what I know about the strange world of the paranormal, I do believe that we had a real, genuine paranormal experience. We now move from the experiences of one police officer to another, but this time, the officer is now retired. As with many of these stories, names, case details and locations have all been either left out or changed. This first experience is chilling and clearly displays features of the paranormal, such as an ominous atmosphere and even poltergeist activity. Regarding your recent request, I can give you the following experience from my service as a police officer in the 1990s. Forgive me if I'm deliberately vague as to exactly when, where, and the police force that I was serving in. Also, I'd prefer not to give you my name for obvious reasons. When this incident occurred... I was still a uniformed officer working out of a small police station covering a largely rural area that was close to a large and busy town. One day, I reported for duty to be told that we'd had a murder on our patch and that a couple of uniformed officers were required to support CID by guarding the crime scene. The crime scene was a small Victorian red brick cottage Which was part of a small rural hamlet of a dozen or so similar cottages. The lone female occupant had been found dead, and her injuries suggested that it was a robbery gone wrong. Her body had been found in the cottage's kitchen. I spent the day guarding access to the cottage's front door and logging everybody who went in and out. Nothing of note happened that day, and I booked off duty in the early evening. With the prospect of a night shift the following night, back with my usual team. I booked on duty that following night and was given my crewmate for that shift, with my designated patrol area. It just so happened to include the hamlet where the murder had occurred. We were instructed to pay particular attention to the cottage and drive by it at least once an hour throughout the night. We were told that the cottage was now locked up and a key was at the police station my crewmate mike not his real name and me began our night shift which was quiet with little going on until about 2 a.m our radios bleated into action with instructions to return to the police station and pick up the key to the cottage a neighborhood called in to say that the lights in the cottage had been turned on and they could hear noises coming from inside this was plainly urgent So we drove back quickly to the police station, grabbed the key and drove with our blue lights onto the cottage. When we arrived at the cottage, the neighbours were outside clearly distressed. This was a fairly young husband and wife. The wife was in tears. They told us that lights had been switching on and off in the cottage and they had heard somebody moving around. It was now around 2.20am, pitch black. And yes, the cottage's lights were all on, which we could clearly see. Our control room had already confirmed to us via our radio that the last police officer to leave the cottage had ensured that all the lights were turned off the day before. Mike and I entered the cottage via the back door that led directly into the kitchen where the lady's body had been found. Not only were the lights on, but the taps in the sink were also turned on. The kitchen was bitterly cold, with our breath condensing in front of our faces. This was notable because it was midsummer and very warm outside, even at this time of night. I turned the taps in the kitchen off, and we began to move through the cottage, checking that all was in order. Every single light was on throughout that house. Mike and I moved upstairs to again see, all the lights switched on. In the bathroom, both the sink and bath taps were turned on and flowing, just like in the kitchen. Mike switched these off. We weren't speaking much, although making the occasional forced joke about ghosts, when we both distinctly heard somebody walking from the direction of the main bedroom along a short corridor towards where we were in the bathroom. We both burst out of the bathroom into the corridor, and there was nobody there. The corridor was now as bitterly cold as the kitchen had been. We again searched the entire cottage, which was quite small with nowhere to hide. As we returned to the ground floor, turning lights off as we went, we heard a noise in the kitchen. The kitchen sink taps were again turned on and flowing. We turned them off again, and quickly exited. We did our best to reassure the two neighbours that all was well, and we departed, both now quite shaken. When we first arrived in the cottage, we locked the back door into the kitchen behind us so nobody could have followed in, or indeed exit before we did. We searched every inch of the cottage, and there was nowhere for anybody to hide. We checked the crime scene logs afterwards and the lights had all been switched off and this was recorded on the log by the last officer to leave. No mention was made of the taps on the log, but we made inquiries later on and the taps were not running when the crime scene was closed down. Nobody would have left these on. The kitchen where the lady was found and the corridor where we heard the footsteps were distinctly colder than the rest of the house on what was a very warm night. Then, of course, there were the footsteps along the upstairs corridor. The flooring there was floorboards, smooth and polished, and the sound of the footsteps were those of somebody wearing shoes. I had other experiences during my 30 years on the force, and one day, I may speak about those too. They weren't always on night shifts either. Best regards. After a thank you email to the listener, he replied with another unsettling experience. I've been mulling over the other experiences that I had during my police service, and I think that there is only one other worth retelling. It was again in the 1990s when I had taken on the role of a village policeman. I think that this was around 18 months after the murder scene incident that I previously described. When I say I had taken on the role of village policeman, it was actually for five villages that were strung out along a picturesque valley. Four of the villages were equally picturesque suited to the charms of the valley, but one village was anything but. It was where the local district council would place its problem families, So the village had a lot of issues, and that kept me quite busy. There was a B road that ran northwest to southeast through the village, and as the road left the village at the southeast end, there was a dip in the road. The road then climbed out of the valley. Next to the dip was a small electricity substation, and next to that a row of red brick houses, Beyond those was an old manor house hidden behind trees. At the time, the manor house was being used as a language school. I was the village Bobby here for three busy years, and during those years we had some exceptionally cold winters. When it was really cold, and I was either doing a late shift or extending my duty into the early hours of the morning, I would be regularly called out to the row of houses next to the substation and the dip in the road this would only ever occur when there was a deep frost on the ground or snow. The occupants of the houses would often phone the police when the weather was like this, saying that they had an intruder in their gardens. Security lights would come on, and several residents claimed to have seen a shadowy human shape either in their gardens or on the pavement by the road apparently staring at their house. I would turn up alone and carry out a search, but would find no intruder. However, I always got a strong feeling of being watched, and on several occasions, I distinctly felt somebody standing directly behind me. I really did feel the presence of somebody being there with me. As I'd find nothing, I'd go to the house where the latest call came from and tell the caller that there was nobody there and nothing to worry about. After the second winter of this happening, when it was bitterly cold, I sought out one of the previous police officers who'd served as the Bobby for the village to ask him if he knew anything. This was Andy, who'd by then retired as a police officer, but now worked for the force as a civilian staff member. I told Andy what had been going on, but before I'd had a chance to tell him very much, he laughed. ...and told me that it was exactly the same when he was based there in the 1970s. Always at night. Always when it was bitterly cold. Always local residents thinking that they had an intruder. No intruder was ever found. Andy told me that he once knew a former officer... ...who had been the village policeman there in the 1960s... ...who told him that the same thing was going on back then. Andy knew much more, however... He told me that when he was there, he did some research. An understairs maid who had been at the nearby manor house that was now the language school had had an affair with the owner of the manor back in the 1800s. When his wife found out, the maid was banished from the manor without notice. She was thrown out with nowhere to go. This was late at night, in midwinter, on a bitterly cold night, She was found dead the following morning, having frozen to death. Where she was found was where the small electricity substation would later be built, by the dip in the road, close to the row of red brick houses whose inhabitants thought they had intruders every winter. Andy even had a photocopy from the local newspaper from the 19th century reporting the tragic discovery of the lifeless body of the maid. I made further inquiries in the village myself several older village residents knew all about this and apparently that short stretch of road by the dip was well known for being haunted well that's the last experience that's worth repeating keep up the good work and that i'm afraid is where we're going to leave this episode i think you'll all agree that these stories are all amazing and at times very, very chilling. A massive thank you to everyone who came forward and kindly shared their experiences. It's hugely appreciated and I'm tremendously grateful. Remember, this is only the first part in this two-part episode, so there's plenty more to come. You'll all just have to be a little patient. In the meantime be wary and careful of small village hamlets with big grim tragic secrets or shortcuts through forests with grisly pasts and of idle functionless doors at the top of an apartment building stairs because the next person to feature on an episode could be you. Do you have an interesting story which you'd be willing to share with the show? If so, Your story could feature in our end of season listener stories episodes. Please get in touch with the show via email at contactus at hauntedukpodcast.com, marking the subject as listener story. We're waiting for your stories. As well as coffee, you can also follow the Haunted UK podcast on Twitter at Haunted UK Pod and on Instagram at Haunted UK Podcast. You can also find us on our website at www.hauntedukpodcast.com where you'll be able to keep up to date with news and announcements, browse and download our episode scripts, get in touch with us, and much, much more. This episode was presented by Steve, produced by Pink Flamingo Home Studio, which you can also find on Instagram by searching for at Pink Flamingo Home Studio. The script for this episode was edited by Marie Waller Proofreading. For more information about this service, contact Marie at Mariewaller.proofreading at gmail.com. For a list of all research sources which we found helpful for the writing of this episode, please see the show's notes. Thank you again for listening to and supporting the Haunted UK podcast. So until the next episode... Stay safe and take care.